So words. They're words that uh, theologians, Bible scholars, and uh, pastors use to, to, to just describe different characteristics, different attributes of God. And sometimes these words are in Scripture, sometimes they're, they're not in the Bible per se. Um, but the concepts or truths that they represent are, like one of these words would be, um, we believe God's omniscient, okay? That, that's kind of a bigger word, kind of a, 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 maybe a theological word or term that you've heard before. It basically means God is all-knowing. Um, that word omniscient, not necessarily in Scripture, but the concept or the truth is, right? You see from page one to the last page of Scripture, just this truth over and over again, that God is all-knowing, that he's wise, he's created the universe, set it in motion, he is all-knowing. Another word similar to that would be the omnipotent of God, that he is all-powerful. And there's a third omni-word, if you will, and it's the omnipresence of God. And it's the truth that, that refers to God's presence in all time and in all places simultaneously. Simply put, it's God's everywhere all the time. But it's even more than that because God really exists outside of time and space. He's not limited by those constraints. And so it's a word that, it, it goes big and small, right? It, it's a word that speaks the bigness of God, the otherness of God, the, the transcendence of God, if you will. But it also speaks to his personal nature. It, it's, uh, it's, it, helps, it helps us understand that he's big and everywhere, but he's also with us. It's a theological term, a core doctrine of the Christian faith that helps us have language for how we describe how God is present, at the world, present in the world at large but also present in our daily struggles. And it's a term that in, in some ways it's, it's encouraging to me, but then just honestly, it's also kind of terrifying because if God's present with us in all places and all times, there's no escaping from God, right? There's no hiding from God. Um, so like, and, and that if you're mindful of God's presence in your life, then I do think, yes, it can help you. Maybe avoid making some bad decisions when you're tempted to sin because you think you're going to get away with it. It's just not going to happen, right? Like he's there. He's there. There's no hiding. Uh, there's no escaping from his, from his presence. And so I, I like, yes, that's terrifying to me in some degrees. But on the other side, uh, if he's in all places, at all times, it also means you'll never be forgotten. You never have been. You never will be. He's present with us. He's present with us in our grief. He's present with us in our struggles. He's present with us in our confusion. He's present with us in our doubts. He's present with us in our victories and in the highlights and celebrating those moments with us as well. He's also present with us in those, in the, when we face those challenges that maybe we sus suspect, hey, this was what I was created for. Like, this is something that I should be stepping into. I'm not going to let these fears kind of push back on me a little bit. Like, what, uh, an example of that would be, uh, like, seven years ago, really kind of this time seven years ago, my wife April and I were uh, on the other side of the globe uh, about to adopt our first son, Cole. He's from the Marshall Islands. We were in the Marshall Islands, and... and uh, and we just had all those fears because we weren't parents, but we were about to be. And so, like, that alone is terrifying. <laughs> and, so, and so just kind of processing all of that. But then also being on the other side of the globe, away from friends, away from family, um, hoping that this international adoption is going to work, that it's going to go through. But at the same time, just this confidence of, of, no, God's led us here. God's brought us here. I know this. Like, this is something we're to happen to. This is something that is, that is for us. And so just knowing, even though it's just April and I on the other side of the globe, just know, we, we were not alone. He's led us to this moment. God's called us, given us the courage to step into, into this moment. And so in that way, his presence was giving a sense of, of boldness, giving a sense of courage for the occasion. And all these are just ways that the omnipresence of God ministers and serves to his people. Last week, if you were with us, we started 
kind of a three-week study of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Now, you might be like, David, it's Christmas, Mary and Joseph, Joseph New Testament, right? Like, why aren't we focused there? Well, we're, we're focused in the, on Joseph in the Old Testament because, I, I, strangely enough, I believe that his story can help us celebrate the Christmas season and really help us celebrate it all the more because we are celebrating the birth of Jesus. And we just saw in Matthew 1:23, he's also known as Emmanuel, as God with us. And so last week when we left off, we saw that Joseph has been sold into slavery and taken into Egypt. So he's in a faraway land, and he's away from, his, away from his family. And while he's in that land, he's going to be unfairly accused. He's going to be unjustly imprisoned. He's also going to be unusually blessed and f- favored, to be sure. But all throughout Joseph's time, away from family, away from the promised land, there's one truth that Joseph comes back to depend upon time and time again. And Joseph's hope was on the omnipresence of God. God was present in and with Joseph throughout his entire life. And we see God's presence with Joseph was a deterrent for sin in his life. We see God's presence with Joseph was a comfort for him during his trials and during his struggles. And we see that God's presence with Joseph was also a source of boldness for his calling. And I think as we press into his story, I think it can give us hope uh, for our story as well. Because it can speak to those moments where you and I find ourselves needing to rely on the presence of God to get us through the moment. And I think that's one of the hopes of Christmas is that we're reminded yearly that God chose to send his son into this world so that we would know and experience the presence of his hope, love, joy, and peace. And so I, I think we see just this hope of God Emmanuel, uh, God wi- of Emmanuel, God with us in all of Scripture from Old and New Testament. And so for this, we're going to start in the Old Testament this morning. Go to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. I'm going to adjust my stool and get everybody on the same page. So I know maybe some of you uh, met, were, were not here last week, or maybe today's your first time. So let me kind of get everybody caught up in the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is also known as Israel. And so Joseph is uh, one of the 12 sons of Israel. Uh, These 12 sons will go on to be the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And And then those 12 tribes become the nation of Israel. And this is a family that God has chosen to bless, to in turn then bless the whole world. Because this family and all of their descendants, the nation of Israel, is to live in such a way to where all men will know that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. That's one of the ways that they're going to bless the whole world, is by pointing them towards the one true God. And they'll do this a whole host of ways, but one of the ways that they are to do this is that they live by the word of God. If they show themselves to be a people directed by his commands and by his truths, driven by the virtues and the ethics of the families of God, then as they do that, they're going to reveal his character. They're going to reveal his nature. They're going to reveal his attributes to a world that so desperately needs to hear them. That's God's plan for Israel as a whole. In Genesis 39, it's just 12 sons, one of whom has been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Just this, this happened because the other brothers considered Joseph the father's favorite. Not considered, he was the father's favorite. And that we, saw, we kind of saw the brokenness of that story last week. They were jealous of him for being his father's favorite, and they, they sold him into slavery. They also had this sense of that maybe there was, uh, that God had a divine plan for Joseph and gave him a special role within the family. And so if you want that backstory, you can read Genesis 37. In Genesis 39, where we're picking up the text, again, he's been sold into slavery, he's taken out of the promised land, and he's in Egypt. Last bit of a detail, Joseph has now been bought by a man named Potiphar. He's this high-ranking official in the Egyptian empire, and that is all the setup we need. Genesis 39 to the text, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. 
When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So you can see Potiphar is enjoying Joseph, being in the family, taking charge of everything. He's only concerned about, eat, concerned about eating, right? He's just being fat and happy because Joseph is taking care of everything. But if you notice, as we read that text, really from the, the, really the, the first three or four verses of it, the text accentuates over and over and over again, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Again, alone, foreign country, foreign people, but it's stressing that the Lord is with Joseph. Now, a bit of historical context that helps pull something out of this as well. In this uh, culture and context, they believed that gods were limited to the borders of their kingdoms. Like the god of the Assyrians was just god in the Assyrian kingdom. The god of the Babylonians, just god over the Babylonians. And so like as far as a kingdom or a country's territory went, that was kind of the realm of power or sovereignty or the authority of those people's gods. And so for Joseph to be out of the promised land, for Joseph to be in Egypt, to, for Joseph to be away from all of that, to be a slavery, uh, to be in slavery, but yet for the Lord to be with him, this is, is showing us, hey, the one true God's different. He's not limited. He's not confined by the kingdoms of man. Once more, Potiphar is able to see it. Potiphar, who lives among, in Egypt, around all these false gods and goddesses, sees, hey, there's something different about Joseph. There's something different about his God as well. This is, this is, this is truth. There's one, this one true God is, is different. He's acting different. He's not, not confined. He's not limited. Potiphar realizes it so much, that, and, and wisely so, he's like, all right, I'm going to let Joseph run everything. And he does. And Joseph has this much power, has this much authority, has this much um, agency or influence, if you will, in Potiphar's household, which I think is probably better than, you know, than, than not having all of that for Joseph. So it seems to be a, a little bit of a better position for Joseph. But at the same time, I do think it's a trap scenario for Joseph because he has this much power. He has this much influence. So he, could, he, could, he has this much say. So he could, he could think to himself, I can act however I want to act. And there's really no one that's going to stop me. I can do whatever I want to do. And there's really no one that, that, can, that can kind of check me in this. And so he can act however he wants to act. In fact, Potiphar's wife believes that Joseph should act however he wants to act. And, and Potiphar, or Potiphar's wife, I should say, she waits until her husband is away, and she tries to seduce Joseph, and, and, and tries, to, to, tries to seduce him. And Joseph r- rightfully recognizes that to do such a thing would be wicked, and would be sinning against the Lord. Joseph's mindful of the presence of God in his life, so much so that we're, he could have gotten away with it, I mean, he wouldn't, right? But it would, he had that much power, he had the, much, that much capacity to be able to sin and perhaps escape judgment from man. Joseph knew, hey, I'm still going to be sinning against the Lord. This would be wrong in his eyes. And it's God's presence in Joseph's life that helps him refrain from sin and continue to be a man of integrity. But you know as well as I do that, that right decisions and, right, and, and you know, right decisions and, and people making them, they're not always rewarded properly, uh, not always uh, re- rewarded correctly. And in this instance, Potiphar's wife, who's now been rejected and scorned, she accuses Joseph of rape and has him thrown in prison. So he's unfairly accused, unjustly imprisoned, yet once again while in prison, we're going to see it's the Lord's presence that sustains, that sustains Joseph and gives him comfort even in the midst of the struggle. Look at the end of, verse th- of, of 
uh, look at the end of chapter 39, verse 20. Joseph's master burned, uh, not burned with anger, that was the verse before. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those he held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So the Lord's with Joseph even in prison, gives him success in one of the most unlikeliest of places because he's literally an inmate. Now he's given the task of running the prison. And so while he's doing that, he doesn't realize it, but God is setting the stage for him to now impact the entire Egyptian empire. Because while he's serving that capacity, he has two prisoners come under his charge, a a cupbearer and a baker, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker. Both of these men have these crazy, like, psychedelic dreams that, that they are sure hold significance for their future, and they do. And Joseph hears them and interprets them and tells the baker, bad news for you. In three days, you're going to be executed. In three days, you're going to be put to death. And sure enough, in three days, he's killed. For the cupbearer, it's good news. In three days, you're going to be released from prison. You're going to be restored unto your position. And Joseph realizes, hey, I have a chance here. If he's the cupbearer to Pharaoh, he's going to be able to speak to the Pharaoh. Maybe he'll speak to the Pharaoh on my behalf and, and let him know, hey, there's this guy who's in prison. He helped me. He was in prison unfairly. Maybe you, know, maybe you can get him out. And so he's like, hey, remember me when you go before the Pharaoh. The cupbearer, I guess, is just excited he's out. Or I don't know what happens, but he forgets. He forgets Joseph. And two years pass with Joseph unjustly imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. And throughout his entire time, he doesn't grow bitter or resentful against the Lord. I'm sure he would have battled those temptations for sure. But we see God's presence comforting him and strengthening him uh, uh, during these two years. Because it's after two years when when Pharaoh is the one who has the crazy psychedelic dream. And he's also sure that it has significance for his empire. And, and he tries to get all of his advisors to interpret it, and none of them can do it. And it's there where finally the cupbearer's cup like, hey, I know a guy. And, and the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph and says, maybe you should call for him. And so the Pharaoh does. Genesis 41, verse 14 is where we're picking back up the text. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved, his, when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give, me, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So Joseph realizes in this, in, in this moment, he rightfully asserts, hey, this isn't me. Never has been me. It's not skills that I'm coming with. It's the Lord working in and on my life. And so when the Pharaoh says, I've heard you can do it, he's like, no, no, it's God. It's God. It's not me. It's, it's God in this moment. And so Joseph rightfully recognizing the presence of the Lord that has been working in and through his life. And I would say that's also what gives Joseph a, a sense of boldness as he's standing in front of the Pharaoh. Because remember, he's a slave. He's a prisoner now before the Pharaoh. But yet he's still having the boldness to have this back and forth with Pharaoh confident that that God will give him the answer, that God will give to to Pharaoh the answer for what does his dream mean. And sure enough, God gives to Joseph the answer, and so Joseph gives the interpretation. And the dream that the Pharaoh had was really kind of a warning that Egypt would have seven years of a bountiful harvest and then seven years of famine. And when the Pharaoh hears this, he thinks, okay, we need to get ready for the famine. And so he, seeing the wisdom of Joseph, seeing how Joseph has, has served in so many different places, the Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of leading Egypt through this time of prospering, 
but also through this time of famine. And Joseph does it so well that it actually increases the, the status of the Egyptian empire because all these other kingdoms were suffering and struggling during the famine. They had to go to Egypt for help, for support, and it just increases the power, increases the authority of Egypt as, as Joseph is able to serve in this way. The other thing it does is his family, those brothers that sold him into slavery, they're in one of these regions that's, that's been destroyed by this famine. They come to Egypt looking for relief looking for rescue, and they're able to find it in Egypt. And so what you see in this is that Joseph's actions not only save the Egyptian empire, they rescue his family, which, remember, is the future nation of Israel. So his actions here save not only the Egyptian empire, but the future uh, nation of Israel. Having this boldness, responding back uh, to, to the Pharaoh, and having this sense of, a sense of call. And so all throughout Joseph's life, remember, away from friends, away from family, away from the promised land, away from everything. He's exiled, but yet while he's exiled, God's presence is there, ministering to him, helping him, sustaining him. He's a, God's presence is a deterrent for sin in his life, a source of comfort to him in his trials, and a sense of boldness for his calling. It's a hope that we have from the omnipresence of God in our life. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. We see it in the New Testament as well. And I think we see it in the Christmas story. Um, in Luke chapter 1, verse 28 through 38, we're going to read it if you want to go ahead and make your way there. The angel Gabriel is talking to Mary, and, and, and he's giving to her the announcement that you will bear a child, and he will be the son of God. And, uh, and, his, and his opening uh, address to her, um, he speaks to uh, the, God, the, the truth about God's presence in and on her life. And, and pay attention to her reaction. Uh, Luke 1, 28 through 38. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, uh, for, is, is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So the angel shows up, greeting Mary, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And what's Mary's response? It's like she's, she's troubled. It's like she's kind of having that both and, the terrified and the encouraged off of this response, uh, off of this greeting, off of this acknowledgement that the Lord is, is with her. But she's, so she's terrified, she's troubled, but she's still curious. Why this pronouncement? What are, you, what are you here? What's this greeting? And then the angel goes on, don't be afraid, God's grace, God's kindness is to you. And then the angel tells her the plan. And the plan, Mary, you, this teenager, you're about to bear the child of God. And there just there's so many different reactions she could have had to that news, right? So many different reactions she could have had to that news. The first one we don't ever think about because just because it's so outlandish. But the first response could have been like, "You're right. Yes, I am. Like, yes, you should choose me. I absolutely should be the one to bear the child of God." Like, you know, that could have been her response. We don't ever think about that, but she could have had that reaction. Like, you know what? I, I've been kind of good lately. Like, sure. You know, I mean, that that could have been her response in that in that moment and made it all about herself made it self-focused. 
At the same time, hearing this response, she could have thought, man, what is this going to do to my reputation in the community? Because I'm having a child outside of wedlock. What's this going to do to Joseph and I's relationships? What's this going to do to how my family feels about me? She could have seen all the trials, all the struggles that this news was going to, to bring onto her. But, but yet, that's not her response. Her response, I am the Lord's servant. She, she could have heard this news and, and, and felt the weight of it all. And then turned and told the angel, please go beg God to find someone else. I am not fit for this. This isn't something that I should do. She could have, you know, sent, sent that response. But no. What's her response? I am the Lord's servant. The first word of encouragement that the angel gives to her, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. God's presence helping be a deterrent for sin, a comfort for our trials, and a sense of boldness for our calling. And, and, and again, you know, I, I, I said earlier, I said earlier, it's both terrifying and encouraging. And there have been some times where, like, God's presence probably is more terrifying than encouraging. But to be honest, like, I wish this would fade to where it's just be left with just a sense of just complete encouragement at the thought of the presence of God in my life. Because, you know, if, if we know that God is always with us, then we should also know that we are always in the presence of God's love. We are always in the presence of God's love, and that we read earlier, his love drives out all fear. And so we too should hear the words of the angel that he spoke to Mary, do not be afraid. We're in the presence of God, we're in the presence of his love. We, we read these verses earlier, but I want to draw our attention back to them again. 1 John 4, uh, 15 through 18. Remember, this is a letter that's written by the Apostle John, who is so overwhelmed with the notion of being loved by God that he often referred to himself as one whom Jesus loved. Just that was like, that was just the way that he thought about um, God's love in his life. But he's also, in this section, he's also remarking about God's presence in our life. 1 John 4, 15 through 18. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. So there's the promise right there, Okay. That means God's presence, God's love is, is, is to be had by any and by all. Okay, so, so when we acknowledge him and we, we trust in him, we, we know that we, uh, that we are now, uh, that God lives in us and we live in God. That the Holy Spirit of God resides in our life and, and we live in the love and care of the family of God. God lives in us and we live in God. But then John continues, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world that we are like Jesus because Christ is living inside of us, right? The Holy Spirit is living inside of us. The love of God living inside of us. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So talking about the notion of being terrified and being encouraged, like I'm wanting this one to fade because I'm so mindful of the love that God has, right? Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. What does love have to do with? Love, love has to do with family and living out the attributes and the characteristics of our father's family. So that, so, so that means, right, put all this together. It's the love that God has for us and it's the love that we have for God that leads us to want to flee from sin. Right? It's, it's the love that God continually shows to us that gives us a comfort during our struggles. And it is the love that God the Father has displayed to us that gives us a sense of confidence, that gives us a sense of assurance to embrace our calling. So, so here's the deal then, right? When we feel the temptation of, oh, I can't do this because, you know, God's watching and I'm going to get lit up for it. Okay, that's, that's, it's, 
No, no, it's when we feel the temptation, and whatever it is, sin, whatever that we're drawn to, it's, oh, no, 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 God's with me. God's with me. His love is with me. And I know that God loves me more than whatever this thing is promising me. And yes, in my soul, I know I love him more than I love this sin. And so God, help me to turn from this and help me to pursue you. And so when the temptation comes, it's, it's God, you're here with me and you're loving me through this moment. So, so when we walk through the crisis and we walk through the struggle and, and it just seems like we're just completely alone walking through all of it. It's no, 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 God's here with me and his love is reminding me that I am not alone. And so maybe when we, we, we have the, the, we recognize the life-changing opportunities before us, it's the job or maybe it's the conversation or it's the action that you know you need to take and you're thinking, man, God has guided my steps. He's directed me here. He's placed me here. This is a moment for me to embrace my calling or whatever and you're wanting to happen to it, but man, all those insecurities well up, all those doubts come up, all those voices in your head that might remind you of all the times you failed, all the times you've dropped the ball, all the times you screwed up. In that moment, we can come back and say, no, 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 God's with me and his love is giving me a sense of courage, give me a sense of, of boldness to happen to this occasion, to step out in confidence. His love is a source of boldness for us in that moment and in, in those times where we need to embrace what it is, that, the work that God has given to us to do. And I'm telling you, this is the ministry, so many, so many different aspects of the ministry of the omnipresence of God, and it is one of the many promises of Christmas. Because God has stopped at nothing to show us how much we are loved, that he would even send his son to be born into this world so that we can know definitively that God is not distant, detached, removed, above the chaos. No, he stepped into the brokenness of this world and showed to us all that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And the hope that comes from knowing that God is with us, the hope that comes from knowing his love is with us, that's a hope that sustained Joseph during the prison. It uplifted him in the palace. It's a hope and, and a joy that enabled Mary, a teenager, to hear this divine announcement. And I think it is a hope and a joy that can empower all of God's sons and daughters to want to flee from sin, to be comforted during our trials, and to have a sense of boldness for our calling to embrace the work that he's calling us to, to do. And so I pray this Christmas season you know that hope. And I pray you know the joy that comes from realizing this is the truth, that God is with us. And as a result, his love drives out all fear.